0: All right, so 1 John 2, 12 to 14. There's a lot here. We'll uh, we'll see how far we get. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you're strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Praise God for His Word. Like all Scripture, we need to read this passage in context, and you're not going to truly appreciate and understand these few verses, even though they're long verses, I mean 12, 13, and 14 are long, it's a long section, um, you're not going to appreciate it unless you know what 1 John 1, 1 all the way to two eleven 11 says. Uh, so let me just quickly summarize that. <laughs> when we read our passage that I just read in context, what we see is that those who have responded appropriately to the true gospel, which is repentance and faith, and thus have Now, vertical fellowship with God and horizontal fellowship with God's people, the church, and those whose lives are marked by, I'm summarizing, repentance, faith, obedience to God's word, and love for God's people, those people can now confidently rest and rejoice in the abundant blessings found in Jesus Christ. In Christ, we have blessed assurance, So the things that are mentioned, if you were listening, right, sins forgiven, know him who is from the beginning, have overcome the evil one. Know the father, you're strong. The word of God abides in you. You've overcome the evil one. I mean, these things are incredible. Who are these things true for? Those who belong to Christ, those who have trusted in Jesus. Now, I would call these redemptive realities. Um, I don't think you'll ever remember that, and so let's just call these things the blessings, the blessings that are true for those who belong to Jesus. Now, if you're in Christ, and you're abiding in Christ, and you've been united to Christ by faith, then these things that we just read in 1 John 2, 12-14 to 14, are true for you. But before d- diving in, uh, I don't know if you've studied this passage, there are several designations there's children or little children, there's young men, and there's fathers. And we need to know, who who do these designations refer to? And I think once we answer that question, we'll seek to unpack the different blessings. So the, the blessings that are found, right? Sin's forgiven, you know Him who is from the beginning. Those are going to be my points, essentially. That, that's what I wanted to unpack together. But first, who do these designations refer to? Little children, fathers, and young men. And I promise you, there's two main views here, and half of you will probably take one view, and the other half the other view, and that's fine. The, the meaning of the text isn't going to change, but it's still important, I think, that we answer, who are, now, can we agree that he's writing to believers? Okay, so that's really what we need to know. That's the most important thing. Now, let me ask this question. Are believers in Christ forgiven? Do they have victory over the evil one? Uh, do they know the Father? Are those things true for every Christian? Okay, we agree on that, good. But I think it's still important that we answer the question, who do these designations refer to? Little children, fathers, and young men. To begin, as we've already seen with 1 John 2, 1, little children, okay, is a term of endearment. It's John's way of addressing the whole church. When he speaks about the whole church, he calls them my little children. So little children refers to all the believers, and that's consistent in the New Testament, okay? Okay. It denotes John's fatherly affection for the church, and he's writing to them as kind of like a spiritual father. He expects them as his children to obey, right? Just like parents expect their kids to obey. And, of course, what is John? He's he's not just any average Joe. He's an apostle. He's a sent one, right? He has apostolic authority. Sent by who? By Jesus. All right. So really then we just have two groups being addressed. Because if if little children is a general term for all the believers, we need to answer the question, who are the young men, who are the fathers? Okay. So some have argued, here are the two views, and I'll tell you where I land, and I'll tell you why. Some have argued that these refer to different stages of spiritual maturity. The fathers being the ones who are just more mature in the faith, and then the young men, those who are less mature. Others have argued that these designations, fathers and young men, refer to simply, literally, older men in the church and younger men, or older believers in the church and younger believers. I think that makes more sense, and here's why. Here's why. And you may disagree, with me that's fine. This is not, a, thankfully, a salvific issue, but when the terms fathers and young men are used in the New Testament, Do you know what they refer to the majority of the time? Fathers and young men, right? Age, not, not the degree of one's spiritual maturity. Now, although we know that the church is made up of brothers and sisters in Christ, of varying degrees of spiritual maturity, right? If you've been a believer for a year, I expect the one who's been a believer for 25 years to be more mature spiritually, right? That makes sense, but... Again, when those designations are used in the Bible, specifically in the New Testament, who do they refer to? I think they refer to older men and younger men. Literally, not figuratively, okay? So let me give you an example. 1 Timothy 5.1, did I put this in your notes? 1 Timothy 5.1, okay. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father younger men as brothers. So clearly, father here is... Is being used to refer to one who is more advanced in years than Timothy. Paul is instructing Timothy on how to encourage an older man. The younger men in the same verse refers to those who are of the same age as young Timothy. So there, old and young refers to literally those who are older in age and younger, not those who are more mature and less mature. So I think what John is saying is this. What I'm writing here in verses 12 to 14 is for all of God's people, all of God's children, both young and old. So the little children are both the young and the old that make up the church. And if you look at our church today, we have senior saints, and we have younger brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, do you think, again, because he's writing to young men and fathers, that this only applies to men? Why? What's the more general term he uses to refer to all the believers? Children, right? Now, in Greek, you have masculine, you have feminine, and you have neuter, right? And so the word Pideon right, which is children, or technion, those are neuter, right? So children here refers to boys and girls. It's both. Does that make sense in the Greek, okay? Like when I say, hey, man, I love our children, am I just referring to the, the boys, I'm referring to the boys and the girls, right? So I think it's fair to say that this is true, what we see in 12 to 14, for all of God's people. But again, what he's writing, he's writing for both the young and the church and the old. And that's just John's way of saying, hey, what I have here, it's for all God's people. If you're a young man or an old man, if you're a woman, it doesn't matter. This is for all of God's people, what I have to say. These things are true if you're a follower of Jesus. Does that make sense? So what are these blessings? What are these redemptive realities? What are these things that are true for those who have trusted in Christ? Where does John start? Now, I'm kind of a nerd a little bit. Um, I I like structure. I I like how the Bible is structured. It's helpful at times to see how the biblical writer, inspired by the Spirit, organizes what he's written. Okay, so if if you... I I need a whiteboard. That'd be so helpful. Um, There's like two columns here. So verses 12 to 14, we're going to see three designations used twice. He starts out, little children, fathers, young men. And then he continues, little children, fathers, and young men. Okay? Um, Why is that important? Who likes sandwiches? I love sandwiches. Big sandwiches, a lot of meat, a lot of vegetables, good sauce. Favorite sandwich place in Lufkin, go. Airport. Yes. I got to get through with you, man. Airport is so good. So good, Sorry, okay. No. I've I just heard, I've heard from Mike. Where else? No Subway folks here? Yeah, for the birds? Yeah, my, my son, Clark, loves Subway, the meatball sub. Okay, and I digress. Let's come back. Okay, so I'm not referring to a literal sandwich. Sandwich is a literary device in writing where the author begins one way, he ends the same way, but what's in the middle is going to be helpful for understanding what's on the outside. What's the best part of the sandwich? Now, I like bread. You know that about me, right? Texas Roadhouse. I love it. But man, when it comes to a sandwich, I care about what's in the middle, right? The meat. here's the place? We have the meat. So is that Arby's? We have the meat. <laughs> I am a carnivore. Okay. Um. Let's get back. So here's how the passage is structured. What's in the middle? What's the, the climax or the focus of our passage? We're going to see that what's in the middle is the cause. Everybody say cause. Okay. What's on the outside? If you have a cause, you have a, an effect. Okay. So the cause is in the middle, and the effects are on the outside. The middle is because you know him who is from the beginning. John says it twice. Because you know him who is from the beginning. Who's that? It's Jesus! Because you know Him who is from the beginning, all these things are true for you. Those are the blessings. Hey, listen, young or old, man or woman, if you're a part of God's church and you've trusted in Christ, these things are true for you. Now, before we dig in, let's talk about verbal tense. Okay? Have you ever heard of the perfect tense in Greek? The perfect, so you get the present tense, you got the aorist tense, which refers to like something that happened in the past. The perfect tense, which is the primary tense used here, right? Aren't you so glad that your pastor knows Greek? You're like, I don't care. But listen to this. The perfect tense refers to a completed action. Something that happened in the past, the effects of which are still felt in the present. Let me give you an example. Verse 12. This is cool. John says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. That verb... Sins are forgiven. You're forgiven is in the perfect tense. Meaning, John is saying, this is something that happened in the past, but the effects are still felt in the present. Okay, so when you trusted in Jesus, what happened? You were were forgiven. Who's been a Christian for more than 20 years? Okay, 30 years. I'll stop at that. Okay, I want to give away age here, but you've been a Christian for a long time. Right, you, you trusted in G- you heard the gospel, you heard the bad news. I'm a sinner, I've offended a holy God. I can do nothing. It was so good, Law. It was so good today. Law was so clear on understanding. Law's one of our students, Law Shaver. I'm talking about the gospel today in, in Mark with our Central High School students, but just again clearly telling all the kids we can do nothing to save ourselves. Right. So you heard that news. I can't do anything to save myself. Okay, I'm a sinner. Okay, what's the good news, Chris? there's a savior. Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He died for your sins. He rose again. And if you trust in him, what? You are forgiven. You're saved, but you're forgiven. Are you still forgiven today? Man, listen, I trusted in Christ when I was 12. I'm about to be 40. That's a long time ago. You think I'm still forgiven? Yeah, perfect tense. It refers to a past action. Guess what? The effects of that are still true today. Amen? Isn't that good? I love what John Stott said. He said, they have been and remain forgiven. You have been, and if you're in Christ, you remain what? Forgiven. All right, so what are these blessings? Number one, we got four. I'm moving pretty quick, actually. Um, Number one, and this is the cause. This is the blessing from which the other effects may roll out of. Knowledge of the Son. Do you know the Son? Do you know the Son? Him who is from the beginning? Let's start in the middle. That's the middle of our passage. Verse 13 and verse 14. It's repeated twice. John says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you fathers, again, because you know Him who is from the beginning. And again, this is the cause of our passage. The believer. If you're a believer in Christ, if you trusted in Jesus, you relationally know The Son. You don't just know about the Son, but you know Him, right? You know Him intimately. Those who have repented of sin and trusted in Jesus, they know Him. They know Him. And again, who is Him from the beginning? It's Christ. Knowledge. Knowledge is a major theme in 1 John. I use this long word, the secessionist. I'm going to call them the departed now, right? There was this mass exodus in the church that John's addressing. This is tragic, right? I mean, this is what John is dealing with. A church where there was this massive split. False teachers came in. They're denying the incarnation. They're denying that Jesus is the Christ. They're saying sin's not a big deal. And people left and they followed after these false teachers. We're going to call them the departed, okay? They left the church because of a false knowledge that they had embraced. And what was the false knowledge? What they believed was wrong what did they believe they denied the incarnation they believed that no God didn't become man they denied that and they denied that Jesus was the promised King to rescue and rule over God's people but John writes to assure his readers that what they know is right they know Jesus and not only that but they know the right things about Jesus Now, let me ask you this. Does it matter what we know about Jesus? Is it enough just to know him? No, I know him. I know Jesus. But what do you know about him? There's a big difference there. I've talked to Mormons, and I've talked to Jehovah's Witnesses, and they would say, I know Jesus. I know him. We believe in Jesus, but I always say, what do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus is from everlasting? Do you believe that he's the uncreated word of life? Do you believe that he's one with the Father? God become man. And they would say no. no. Because of that, neither the Mormon nor the Jehovah's Witness really knows Jesus because it matters what you know about Jesus. Jesus is the key. I said this last week. Trusting in Jesus brings us into a new sphere of existence. Knowing Jesus results in forgiveness of sin, reconciliation to God, Victory over the evil one and strength for holy living. That's what we see in our passage, right? We're made new, we're saved, we're forgiven. But it, it's knowing the right things about Jesus, right? It's it's trusting in the right things about Jesus that bring us into that new sphere of existence. Number two, forgiveness of sin. Oh, man, is there a greater blessing? The knowing that in Christ you're forgiven? What is the one thing that separates us from a holy and just God? Sin. And what have we all done? Man, we're all in a pickle. You know, that that's the great common denominator of humanity. We've all sinned. What does Paul say in Romans 3? No one's good. No one's good. I mean... Paul's not being hyperbolic. He's being literal. No one is good. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we all need what? We need forgiveness. And if you've trusted in Christ, what are you promised? Forgiveness. Verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. And then we have this phrase that we'll unpack in a moment. For his name's mm-hmm. sake. It's because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake so those who trust in jesus those who those who have responded appropriately to the gospel which is repentance and faith are forgiven and remain what forgiven that's the perfect tense again right so those who again if you trusted in christ 25 years ago guess what you are today you're still forgiven now again where that can be abused is hey i prayed a prayer so i'm i'm good i can live how i want to no 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 you've been reading first john with me you know that's not true, right? Because again, those who trust in Christ not only get forgiveness, they get transformation, a new nature. I want to follow my King. I know I can't be sinless, but by God's grace, I can, I can sin less. And I want to sin less. Yeah, I'm so encouraged by Clark. Um, this was two nights ago. He just, I, I really think Clark loves the Lord. I mean, he was just crying over sin, you know, just being disrespectful. He just kept saying, Dad, I hate sin. I want Jesus to come back now. My like, what nine year old says that. <laughs> but just again, he just he hates it. He, he doesn't want to sin, and I'm trying to help him to see. you know, buddy, Christ didn't come for the healthy. He's that kind of doctor. He doesn't come for the healthy. He comes for the sick. You're a sinner, Daddy's a sinner. We both need Jesus' forgiveness, right? And he, he gives it to us if we trust in him. The verb to forgive, uh, theame It's a tough word to say, atheame. It means to release from legal or moral obligation or consequence, to cancel or to pardon. Okay, so to forgive, to cancel or to pardon. Romans four seven to eight is helpful here. Paul's quoting Psalm thirty two. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed here it says, "Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin." That's forgiveness, right? If you've been forgiven, he no longer counts it against you. Amen? Been counted against another. Who's that? Jesus. What a beautiful passage. To be forgiven means we are now counted righteous before God. We are no longer seen as guilty. And I was trying to explain that to Clark. Buddy, for those who trust in Jesus, what does Satan do? What's his game? He's a liar and an accuser, right? And he wants to accuse us. But if we're in Christ, when the Father sees us, who does he now see? He sees the righteousness of Christ applied to us. Amen? I mean, it's like, you know, you you go to the ATM machine. You're like, oh, man, my account is empty. Guess what? If you've trusted in Christ, what does your account now say? Christ's righteousness. It's now your account. It's full of his righteousness. And the devil has no grounds for accusing those who have trusted in Jesus because we're forgiven. We're counted as righteous. Amen? Our debt's been paid. We see this all over 1 John, so let me just give you a little survey. We'll call this a survey of forgiveness, according to John in 1 John. In 1 John 1-7, we see that the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. That's 1 John 1-7. In 1 John 1-9, which hopefully we're all familiar with, we learn that in Him, our sins are forgiven and we're cleansed from all unrighteousness. And in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, we learn that Jesus is our helper, the one who stands for us as our righteous advocate, the righteous one who makes us righteous by taking the wrath of God in our place. Amen? Okay, and then we have the phrase, for his name's sake. What does that mean? We're forgiven for his name's sake. The NIV reads, this is the New International Version, on account of his name. So this should be read the literal reading of this verse in First John two verse twelve. Your sins are forgiven because of His name. Everybody say, Mike, if you're a Christian, my sins are forgiven, sins are forgiven. because of His name. That's, we don't usually talk like that. That sounds because of His name. What does that mean? Well, we have forgiveness, and we only have forgiveness because of who? Because of Jesus. And and in the Jewish world, right? The name. Represented the person. The name represented the person. Daniel Aiken writes, On account of his name stands for the person and work of Jesus in its totality. So if someone ever asks you, Hey, bro, why are you forgiven? Or bro, Hannah, if you're a girl, why are you forgiven? You should always respond by saying, Because of because of his name. Because of his, because of his name and because of Jesus are the same thing. Okay, Because of Jesus. His person and his work have been emphasized already in First John. How is Jesus able to take the full weight of our sin and serve as the sinless sacrifice in our place? Because as we've learned, Jesus is the one who is from the beginning, the word of life, the eternal life, the life. And as we've seen in First 1 John 1-7, his work pertains to his blood, namely his death. So here's the logic. We are forgiven because of Jesus, the one who is fully God and who fully died in our place. Amen? Amen. So that's one and two, okay? Those are pretty good. To know Him and to know forgiveness. If you're in Christ, you know Jesus relationally and you're forgiven. Number three, knowledge of the Father. Oh, man. Verse 13. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. Knowing Jesus and knowing the Father are inseparable. Let me say that again. Knowing Jesus and knowing the Father are what? They're inseparable. And, and John is going to make this time, this point time and time again. This is John's Gospel. This is 1 John. Let me give you a few passages. So we all know John 14, 6, and 7. I should stop saying that because we don't all know John 14, 6, and 7. But if you do know John 14, 6, and 7, this is what it said. Jesus said to him, on the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me or through me. And then verse 7, we don't typically continue with verse 7. If you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. Right? So, knowing the Son and knowing the Father are inseparable. If you know the Son, you know the, the and the and the Spirit, right? I mean, come on, we're Trinitarian, amen? <laughs> come on, so not forget that. So, again, if you know me, you have known my father also. First John 1 3. That oh man, this is so good. That which we've seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. John is writing. So John, one of the twelve disciples, is saying, Hey man, listen, what I saw, what I heard, I mean I was there when Jesus did the miracles. I heard his authoritative teaching. I'm proclaiming everything I saw and heard to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, with God's people. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. He doesn't just say with the Father or with the Son. He says with the Father and the Son. So if you've trusted in Christ, you have fellowship with the Father and the Son. One more. 1 John 2, 23-24. No one. We're going to finish tonight. It's good. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Oh, Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. I, I forgot who said this. I think it was, um, I knew know who it was. It was uh, Daniel Akin. He's a New Testament scholar. Okay, Daniel Akin. He said, when Jesus is your Savior, God becomes your Father. If you belong to the son, you can now relate to God as your father. Amen. Oh, man, I'm so thankful that the Lord has blessed me with a stepdad who loves the Lord. Pop, you've been a great stepfather. I'm thankful for you. I really am. I love you. Um, You know, my dad, my biological dad left when I was 11. He just, he peaced out and he was gone. I mean, really middle school and high school, I didn't see him. And I got saved during that time. And I remember so many people saying, Chris, like, I, I bet you just have a hard time trusting in the Father. Like, what, are you, what are you talking about? Well, you know, because because your dad left. I mean, does that affect how you look at the Father? Like, no. I, I know my Heavenly Father will never leave me or forsake me. I'm the perfect Father. Amen? Amen? I can now call God Father. I can relate to Him as Father because I belong to the Son. So Again, when Jesus is your Savior, God becomes your Father. And here we see that the great... Privilege of belonging to Jesus, which is to know the Father. Something has happened positionally for the believer in Jesus. This is John 3:36. Whoever believes in the Son has what? Eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Through Jesus, we're now able to relate to God differently. Amen we're no longer God's enemy but his his friend and more than that his his child his sons and daughter's we're adopted into the family of God we can now relate to him as children to a father the privileges that are produced by a right response to the gospel are triune in shape we know the father we know the son and we know the spirit you know if you ask, hey Chris, you know, what are what are some books in the Bible that are just you know very Trinitarian, where there's an emphasis on the one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I'd say one of the best is John's Gospel and John's letter, his first letter, first John. Um, who likes to dance? <laughs> I need to, everybody's like, oh, can I raise my hand? Is this a safe space? Um, Knowing, knowing Jesus brings us into the dance. Tim Keller years ago described the Trinity as this beautiful, infinite dance. Where the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit, one God, three persons, relate to one another in perfect triune community. Isn't that cool? I mean, they've been together forever in perfect fellowship. And when we trust in Jesus, we are brought into that community. We know the Father, we know the Son, and we know the, we know the Spirit. And furthermore, our community as a church is to be a reflection of that community, right? Father, Son, and Spirit, as we love and serve one another. Uh, is that is that right or is it slow? Okay, so we're good. Okay, I'm, I just want to be careful. Um, the Old Testament speaks of a new covenant. Okay, let me just talk about this briefly. The New Covenant, according to Jeremiah 31, will include forgiveness and what? What does the gospel do? It provides forgiveness and transformation, right? The New Covenant talks about God writing His law on our hearts. We're going to have knowledge of God. Let me read Jeremiah 31, 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. And I'll remember their sin no more. So what John is writing is essentially the fulfillment of the new covenant promise. It's come to fruition in Christ, right? The the benefits of being in Christ were forgiven. And we know God. We know Him relationally. Isn't that epic? It's incredible. Number four, last one. Victory and spiritual strength. That is the fourth. Blessing or redemptive reality for those who know Jesus, who is from the beginning. If you know Christ, what? You're forgiven. What's point number three? You know the Father. And lastly, victory and spiritual strength. This is verse 13 and 14. I'm writing to you, young man, because you have overcome the evil one. And that's, a uh, wow, like... Did we think about that? Like, you've overcome the evil one. Who's that? It's him. Satan. But John's saying, I'm writing to you because you've overcome the evil one. Not you will overcome the evil one, right? But you you have. Huh. I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you. And in case you weren't listening, John says it again, and you've overcome the evil one. Well, Listen. Brothers and sisters, when when the Bible repeats something, there's a reason for that. Pay attention. This is emphatic. Listen up. Let's start with victory. Again, everybody knows Nike. I've never owned a pair. Just kidding. I've earned, earned I think everybody, who has not owned a pair of life? Really? You're an Adidas man? Do you know what Nike means? Victory. Right? Victory. So Those who are in Christ, those who have trusted in Jesus, have overcome the evil one. Now, the verb used here is nikao, Nike, right? Nikao, it means to win a victory over, to be victorious over, to conquer. That's a cool word, to conquer, right? I mean, if you know Christ, then you've conquered. Conquered who? The evil one. Now, in what sense have we conquered the evil one? I don't remember doing that what's well, cuz I didn't Christ did but who are we in Christ so what's true of him is now true for his people I think the best illustration is David and Goliath okay so ancient warfare instead of you know risking mass casualties oftentimes each side would elect their champion right and you got Goliath the giant and the deal is if Goliath wins then the Philistines win right but if the champion of Israel wins then all of Israel wins. And who fights? Testing your biblical knowledge. Who fights Goliath? No, God. But yes, David. Yeah. God is victorious, right? David comes in the name of the Lord. But yeah, David fights. Who wins? The Lord. Yeah, but David wins, right? I'm just but seriously, David wins, but the Lord wins. But not just David. Who does David represent? All of Israel at this point. And so who won? Israel won. Who won for us at the cross and empty tomb? I mean, Satan has been smashed. He knows he's undone, right? So who won? We won. We won. What's that? Those who are in Christ. Amen. Christ was victorious. And those who belong to him share in that victory. Let me give you a couple passages here that are helpful. Write these down if they're not in your notes. I don't remember if I put them there. Did I write down Colossians 2, 13 to 15? Okay, and then Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. Let me read these and just give you two quick takeaways. So, I need to preach through Colossians. Man, that's such a good book. Colossians 2, 13 to 15. And you who were dead. Yeah, there's that bad news again, right? But you got to start with the bad news. And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, oh, here it is, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed. Everybody say disarmed. disarmed. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In who? Christ. Okay, so again, victory. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15, we're almost done. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver. So again, read the first part. He might, who's he here? Jesus, he's the subject, might destroy the devil, verse 15, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. How is Christ victorious for us? What do we see in these two passages? Two quick takeaways. With the Colossians text, we see that Christ canceled our debt of sin at the cross, thus disarming the demonic powers, and making us spiritually alive. The evil one now has no grounds to accuse us, right? Because our debt's been paid. And if you look in my account, what are you going to see? Not my righteousness. Christ's righteousness. Oh. And with the Hebrews text, we see that Christ died for us. Namely, He was separated from the Father for us, taking the penalty of sin in whose place? Our place. So that We would not have to die, which means eternal separation. So we no longer fear death, namely what? Eternal death, because Christ faced separation from the Father for us where? At the the cross. So Christ was victorious over sin, death, and Satan at the cross, Mm -hmm. and those who trust in Jesus now share in that victory. Next for Strong. Who's Strong? If you're in Christ, you are strong. You're strong. Now, that's verse 14. 14b. Now, this can pertain to spiritual strength. John uses the present tense of the verb to be strong, which denotes what kind of action. I'm not just strong yesterday. I'm not just strong today. But if I'm in Christ by faith, I'm strong forever. Amen, sister. I'm strong forever. Continuously strong. Why? Who's the source of my strength? It's not. Who's the source of my victory? Christ, right? So I'm not victorious because of me. I'm victorious because of Christ. I'm not strong because of me. I'm strong because I've been united to the one who is strong. So not only do we have victory in Christ, but we have strength to overcome temptation and live holy lives in the present. Now what makes us strong? According to our text, it's his word and his work. What makes us strong? His Word and His his Word. Verse 14b. Because you're strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you've overcome the evil one. Now, the Holy Spirit is key here. For it's the Spirit who enables us to discern and understand the Word. Can we understand the Word of God without the Spirit? Of course not, right? Not only does the Spirit give us discernment, but the Spirit gives us power to obey the Word. Now, this is so good. So, man, the Father and the Son give us the Spirit so that we can read and understand the Word, but not just stop with that, but have the strength to obey the Word. Obey the Word. So when Satan accuses us, the Spirit brings to mind the truth that we are righteous in Christ. When the evil one tempts us, and he will, won't he? When the evil one tempts us, the Spirit brings God's Word to bear on our, our hearts and empowers us to do what? To go God's way and not the way of the world. So here we see that the blessings that are found in Christ are Trinitarian in shape. Through trusting in Christ, we now know the Father and are empowered by the, the Spirit. Isn't that cool? To live holy. In some Sure you're loving to hear that. Okay. Five minutes. But in some John is saying that those who are in Christ, who have responded to the gospel by repenting and believing, know Jesus. Now, listen, I want you to go home and rejoice tonight. I want you to remember what you learned tonight that if you've trusted in Christ, these things are true for you. John is driving this home into those who remain in the church. Hey, brothers and sisters, I know many have left, but you've remained, and you know these things are true. And here they are. If you're in Christ, you know Jesus, your sins are forgiven, you know the Father, you have victory over the evil one and strength to live holy. Amen? Man, that's like... Don't forget, what is true for you, right, is what? These things are what? They're, They're true for you, why? of Christ. Because of Christ. Let me conclude. I'm just going to to sing, but I want to to hear again. I want us to hear again um, the first and third verses from Blessed Assurance. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed watching and waiting, looking above, filled with His goodness, lost in His love. Amen? Have you trusted in Jesus? Only in Christ is there blessed assurance. If you want blessed assurance, it's found in one place, in one place only. It's actually a person. It's found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. So trust in Him. Trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, I I pray that You would move these truths from our heads and apply them to our hearts, that we would live out of this knowledge, knowing that in Christ we're forgiven, that in Christ we can now relate to God as our Father, and that in Christ we have victory over the evil one and the strength to endure. We thank you that these things are not up to us, that, that we can't earn these things, we can't attain these things. They have been purchased for us. Through Jesus' perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection. And for that, Father, we say thank you. And I pray that we would demonstrate our gratitude by living lives of sacrificial love. Loving you and loving each other. And bearing witness to the gospel boldly to a lost and dying world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.